You're listening to the CPR of Life podcast, a show about creating community through connection, awakening potential, and uncovering the resilience of the human spirit through an understanding of state of mind. It's about living a life well-lived and uncovering what often gets in the way. Hello and welcome to episode number 31. I really feel blessed that I have the opportunity to connect with and talk to amazing human beings. When I reflect on that, I guess we pretty much all have that opportunity every day. But having this podcast kind of reinforces and gives me the opportunity to meet with people and connect with people that I otherwise probably wouldn't have known. And my guest today, Robert Heath, is someone I didn't know much about prior to our conversation. Robert is a former teacher. He's former lawyer, a former U.S. Marine Corps officer, uh, who's made a shift in his career, and he's now an author, empowerment speaker, and a leadership development coach. I so enjoyed learning more about him and the work he does. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Robert, welcome. It is such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, totally my pleasure. We've only had a little brief chat just to get to know each other a bit, and already I wished I was pressing record for a lot of what you're saying. Robert, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about you? Who's Robert? Sure. Um, Right now, and for most of my life, I've been really focused on leadership, and right now I'm the CEO of Legacy Leadership Consulting. Um, What we do is we help leaders to do more with less, by properly leveraging the talents of their teams. Um, And so really my focus is to help to make the world a better place, to help to create better leaders and to really change the focus of leadership from being so results and, and job focused to leaders being able to actually focus on what they're supposed to be focused on, which are the people that they lead. And so we're working to make that movement a reality. So how did that come to be in your world? Now, you have a very diverse background, so let's chat about that for a little bit. You were a teacher. All right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, did, I, I did a number of things. Um, I like to consider myself a career renaissance man. Um, some people might say I have career ADD. Um, I'll let you decide after you hear. But um, I started off, um, got my master's degree, and went and taught school. Um, I was an economics undergrad, economics and speech communications. I went to become a teacher because one of the the focuses of my my time while I was in school was to really figure out how to help end generational and systemic poverty. Um, I'm from Chicago originally. I have a lot of family and friends um, from the inner city. And I saw how a lot of people who were good people, poverty has a a corrupting effect and it, it forces certain choices. And so one of the things in my life was that I wanted to really work at figuring out how to change those choices and how to get people, help people to get out of poverty. So I went into teaching um, because that was one of the quickest ways for me to be able to give back to the communities. I became a Spanish teacher. And funny story about that, when I came out of my master's program, there were very few economics teaching positions, but there were a lot of Spanish teaching positions. So the economist in me saw the supply demand curve (laughs) to the Spanish teaching position. Um, But I liked to infuse a lot of economics and a lot of real world entrepreneurship focus into my Spanish classes while I was teaching. And I coached basketball during that time as well. So 
fast forward six years, I'm teaching and I, and I see a number of things. I've been a union rep. I've been a school improvement team coordinator at this time. I've, been, I've led teachers. I've led students. And what I started to see was that the change that I wanted to be able to make wasn't going to be able to be made inside the schools. There were too many factors that weighed on the school system. Yeah. I saw a superintendent get pushed out. It had nothing to do with her ability to be a superintendent. She wound up having to leave because of the politics and because of the, the infighting between the business and the political classes, not the teachers' classes. Um, and so I realized that I needed to, to, to learn more. I needed to understand more if I was going to have the impact on society that I wanted to have. Um, so I went to law school to learn the system, to really understand how our laws are made, what our social contract looks like. And then I also went and joined the, um, the greatest leadership academy on the face of the earth, the United States Marine Corps. I became a United States Marine Corps officer. Um, and so in those two roles, I really got to understand both how to, how to counsel people, how to, how to look at problems from both sides, how to really dig deep into the, the, the problems that we were facing, but I also learned how to lead people um, and how to, how to be in a position where you help people to think about things much bigger than themselves and how you get people to, to do extraordinary feats and extraordinary tasks. So um, after eight years of being a United States Marine Corps officer, I exited the Marine Corps in 2017 and I upon coming to the civilian world, really put all of my passion, my focus, my effort into um, figuring out how to help to build better leaders. And that led to me starting the Legacy Leadership Consulting um, Firm in 2018. That is very diverse. That is. But there's also kind of one common theme in all that is kind of, a, there's there seems to be, you have a passion for like searching and learning. You're a sponge. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I, I love learning. I love to, to understand. And one of the reasons why is because I, I really love to, to be able to, to bring value to my community, bring value back to society with things that I learn. And I, I like to understand people. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned over the years is, you know, I see things from my perspective, but there's always other perspectives that I can learn. And yeah. so the more that I learn, the more that I engage, the more that I see, you know, um, the world from a different perspective, the better I am able to engage with others, the better I am able to help others with their problems, the better I am able to lead people um, to their greatness. You know, one of the things I talk about leadership is that leadership is facilitating the manifestation of greatness in others. And so part of my learning is just, helping to helping me to understand how to do that better well you know so here's from my experience is that and we were talking before about the personal lens so we we show up at the table with our personal lens but if we know that so does the other person there's space there for, for more creativity to come in whereas what i find from working with some leaders is that they're they're really stuck on their position yes and so they're not allowing you know, but when you bring, you know, when you show up at the table, knowing that, you know what, I have my perspective, you're going to have your perspective, but that's where creativity really, really happens. Yes, exactly. When we can come together, right? I love the quote, Stephen Covey talked about it like this. We as human beings, especially. I lost you. Okay. Sorry. I lost you for a second. So you were saying Stephen Covey. 
Right. So in, in the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey talks a lot about how we, we go on this um, in America specifically. We, we have this, you know, real focus on independence. And the goal is to go from being dependent on your parents, dependent on things to being independent, as if that's the mountaintop, as if that's where we have reached the summit. And what he talks about is we forget that there's another step. And that other step is interdependence. Mm. And that's the place where synergy begins to happen. That's the place where we really get to understand how to create with others. And when we can understand that one plus one no longer equals two, one plus one can equal 11, one plus one can equal 1 million. Because when you take the creativity of one person and the creativity of another, it creates something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. I Love that. And it's one of these things that for, from my experience, I see that when you work with a company in that, from that perspective, that mm-hmm. people feel it when they, when they show up at the table and, and there's, there's a spot for them and there's a spot for them to kind of be curious and have a voice. So magic can happen, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I, I'm talking to a lot of businesses now, I have a speech that I'm doing um, talking about engaged leadership, engaging leadership rather. And, you know, I've talked to a number of business, business groups about the new, the, the Gallup study where they talk about 70% of, um, employees across the country are disengaged. And one of the things that was so important in that, in that conversation was that's costing us businesses. And this is a global phenomenon, but in the U S it's costing us businesses, 450 to 550 billion dollars annually in lost profits based on productivity, lost productivity. And what's crazy about that is engaged employees are 57% more productive than disengaged employees. So just to put that in the kind of perspective, if you have a a small business with, you know, a hundred employees, Having them be engaged is the same as having a, a small business of 157 employees, but you're only paying for 100. And it's that 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 point there is just so important for for business owners to really understand and leaders in general understand that our job is to engage those that we're working with, those that we're that we're trying to help, right? So important. What I find when I'm having conversations, and it's it's really like saying to them, because I I talk a lot about stress and well-being in the workplace, you know, like it's one of these things Mm -hmm. that if they don't acknowledge that that exists, you know, and even be having a conversation about it, when people are stressed, they don't, they don't see, you know, they they see a snapshot of something. They don't see a Mm -hmm. zoomed out picture when they're in a better, like in a low state, you're not functioning at your best. Exactly. So when people are in that high stress and if you don't kind of balance that where life generally flows, Mm. it's not always going to be ups. It's not always going to be downs, but when you, you have to acknowledge that that the flow is there. Right. And that's the, that, that place between flow and not flow. What I call that is the the leadership gap, right? Yeah. Oftentimes as leaders, we think that we pay people to be their best. And nothing could be further from the truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> a salary to a person is what you pay them to not get fired, right? And how do we know that that's true? Because 
we would pay that same salary to everybody else who could do the job at that level yeah. to not get fired, right? And and because it's a business decision, I can't pay you as much as you're necessarily um, worth because then I don't have any profit margin. I can't pay you exactly what you do to the product because then there's no profit margin there. So there's always this 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 bargain between what's the minimum amount that I need to put out the product. That's what I can pay because that's where we can make money. And from a business perspective, it makes perfect sense, right? But so often we want excellence from our people. It's one of those things where, you know, we've been taught through school that you're supposed to do your best and you're supposed to try hard and you're supposed to work hard. And so a lot of people have this idea in their head as well. But the difference between excellence and proficiency is a huge gap, right? Yeah. The difference between the best person who works at a, at a, at a plant and the worst person who the plant can't fire because they're good enough, but they're still not <laughs> yeah. great, right? That's, that's a big gap. And the way that we get to close that gap is not through uh, money. It's through leadership. You pay people in respect. You pay people in belonging. You pay people in less stress. You pay people in aligning your goals to their goals so that they're doing what they're doing for you because it advances what they want in their lives. And when you can do that, people will knock down walls for you. People will march until they're, they're, they're dead tired. People will do amazing things when you can earn their loyalty, when you can earn their engagement, and when you can give them a goal and a vision that inspires their passion. It's company culture. You know, like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, and it's one of these things for, like, it, 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 there's a trickle-down effect from it. But, and you know, right. often like there's companies I've worked with where their productivity is here, their output is here, but when they engage their employees, when they create a space for creativity and mm-hmm. their, their productivity can go through the roof. Goes through the roof, yep. Productivity goes up by 57% when employees are engaged. Absenteeism goes down by 37% when employees are engaged. Employees are 87% less likely to resign when they're, in, excuse me, when they're engaged. People will stay at a, at a job where they're making less money yep. where they're engaged. And the reason why is, and this is the funny thing on the flip side of that, 50% of people who leave their jobs leave their jobs because of their boss. Yeah. So when you look at that, right, leadership has such an impact on a company's performance and a company's well-being and their ability to compete in the marketplace, right? There was a Harvard Business uh, Review article that talked about the fact that only about 25% of a company's wealth is found in its material, material assets, the company's wealth, 75% of its wealth is found in its human capital. Yes. But that's where we don't develop, we don't mine. And, and, and there's a great reason for that. It's because it's not what we're taught. So it's one of the more difficult things for us to do. We don't learn how to lead others as we go through school, as we go through entry-level job training, as we go through higher education, as we go through um, even corporate development training. Yeah. Oftentimes, what we learn is we learn to manage. Yeah. And managing, right? 
there was a there was a speaker Hamda Khan who said this, and I I loved it. He said, "We manage things, we lead people." Yeah. And so often, it's the reverse. We try to manage people. We try to handle people. We try to you know it's inauthentic. It's insincere, and people know that right off the bat, right? Yeah. And. And, and so what I, t- what I tell leaders all the time is there's a couple of reasons why it feels so overwhelming, why there's so much anxiety about, you know, getting people to do their best. And so we kind of just settle for getting them to not do l- lower than the, yeah. than the amount that we need. Right. So we, we, we kind of settle for as long as I don't got to fire anybody, it's a good day. Right? Yeah. And the reason, the reason why is oftentimes we're overwhelmed with the things that we have to do, right? Yeah. And so we don't know how to spend the time that we need to spend mentoring and uh, developing and coaching and training as good as we can be, as effective as we can be with our time, right? I teach leaders, I take them through. One of the first things you have to learn is how to thrive in the chaos of leadership. As a follower, life is a lot easier, right? You know what's good. You know what's bad. You know what you need to get done. Your boss gives you weekly, monthly, quarterly goals, and you know whether you're reaching them, right? It's really easy. Once you move into management, once you move into supervision, the goals get a lot more ambiguous, and you really don't have a real idea of whether or not you're doing well at your job or whether you're not. You come in and you're like, well, I guess the boss didn't say anything (laughs) negative, so I guess I'm doing well, right? And that continues. And so I help leaders to really thrive, learn to thrive in that chaos of not having defined goals, which is new to us, right? Yeah. All through school, you know what you need to do to get an A. You know what you need to do to not get in trouble, you know, right? Like it's very obvious. College, same thing. We've been conditioned to follow rules, to follow yeah. orders. Then we get thrown, when we get into leadership, right? People say, all right, you're really good at following orders. You're really good at this system. You're really good at taking care of you. So now, because you're really good at what you do, we're going to give you four or five or 10 or 20 or 50 mediocre people at what they do. And I need you to get them to be as good as you are at what you do. It's like, oh my God, this is crazy. There's overwhelm. There's anxiety. There's fear. There's imposter syndrome. All of these. That was that was in my head. As imposter syndrome was my next question for you. Is it's it's one of these things where I talk to people, and so many people have it. But in my experience, what like often people who are put into a management role, they Mm -hmm. they they, in the government, anyways, it happens because you're the one who succeeded in a competition. (laughs) It might not be that you're actually the best person for the job. Exactly. And it's not just the government. I mean, that same Gallup study, that same Gallup study talked about there there was two important factors, right? Number one, they talked about people normally, like 90% of people who are in leadership roles got there because of one of two things. Either A, they were really good at a job that didn't require leadership. Yeah. Right. And so then they got put into a leadership role or two, they were the most senior person and therefore they, that's where the, that's the, that was the next, the next step, right? yeah. But notice that in neither of those cases did, did we look at what the qualifications were that were necessary for the job and the person and say, yep, these are a match. Yeah. And that's why it leads to our second really crazy finding that blew my mind. 82% of managers who are in positions currently are not in the right position for their skills. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, coming from a statistics 
background. I love that you're, you've got all these percentages. And, and yes, yes. Like it, it's really right. I'm an economist. So like I look at sociologist in me is like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, that's my initial training. We're looking at results. I, intentions yeah. are great. What happens on the back end? That's what I need to see. And what we're seeing and what I tell, what I talk to groups about so much, so often, everybody knows it, but people are scared to say it. And it's this, leadership is broken. Hmm. Yes. Right now, we're putting people into leadership positions and we're setting them up for failure. And here's another statistic for you that, that comes from the Gallup study. One out of 10 people is naturally talented in the five areas that they say are necessary for leadership. Two out of 10, so ultimately only 30% of people have some sort of talent in leadership, just naturally gifted. But of those that, are, that, that have the natural talent to be awesome leaders, only one in 10 people. But we go through an entire pipeline, which I call the executive leadership track, right? Through school, through higher education, through work, all the way up to becoming a manager, supervisor, or an executive. And the training that we get, none of it helps us to develop the skills that we need to be good leaders. Some of it tells us some of the things that we need to know. It gives us the knowledge that we need to have, but very rarely do we teach the skills that we need to be good leaders. One of the things that you were talking about with what you do that I love so much, the inside out concept, right? Oh God, yeah. I'm teaching a group, um, a part of mine and I are teaching a group right now. We're talking, we're going through the book, Crucial Conversations, and we're talking about communication. And anywhere along that pathway, is how to have conversations in such a way that creates safety and mutual respect and shared meaning and mutual, um, a mutual desired outcome. That's an essential skill. It, in, in every aspect of life, it is. And it's one of the things where I touch upon it as well when I do like dealing with like difficult conversations is because what I see is people create these expectations. I call it the expectation box where say you and I are working mm -hmm. together or have some sort of a relationship. I expect certain things from you and I create exactly. this goal and I don't share with you what I, 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 my expectations are. Don't share it with you. Don't mm -hmm. get any buy-in from your agreement, but then I hold you accountable to it. <laughs> yes it causes yes. so much friction so much friction and mm. so much conflict whereas if you switch that to an agreement and I do this when I'm working with parents is have an agreement you know it's it's it's, it's, it's yes. in every aspect if you switch that expectation box if you can flip it a little bit have a conversation where there's agreement and both mm -hmm. again both parties come to the table with curiosity with an understanding mm. of their own personal lens again. And so, you know, like this crucial conversations and all of the stuff that you've been talking about, isn't it interesting? I don't know about your experience, but for me often when I'm, it doesn't matter who I'm working with, the same thing could apply to parenting, can apply to like mm -hmm. you know, relationships, can apply leadership. It's just funny. It's just human behavior. It's fascinating to me. Exactly. Exactly. No, I agree with you 100%, right? The, and that's the thing that I think so many people, again, our system doesn't really prepare us to understand that the hierarchies that we have in our leadership organizations are not necessary for leadership as much as they're necessary for decision making to take place for administration of a large organization. But what we do is we put so much power 
in the position of the leader, right? And there's been thousands of years of discussions about this, right? If you go back to the Bible and you look at what Jesus talked about, about the first being last and the last being first, if you go back even further to the Tao Te Ching and Lao Tzu, yeah. one of the, my favorite quotes about leadership comes from the Tao Te Ching. And he, he says it this way. He says, the greatest of leaders, the people barely know they exist. When their task is accomplished, when their job is finished, the people say we did it ourselves. That was over 3,000 years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so ultimately... As we're working through figuring out how to be a leader, the biggest thing that we have to understand is how can we remember that we can lead up, we can lead down, and we can lead sideways. John Maxwell calls it the 360-degree leader, right? Yeah. Your interactions with any any person that you have an interaction with are... um, Your interactions with anybody that you have an interaction with are your window to leadership in the marine corps we say wherever two marines are together one is one is in charge one's a leader there's always a leader somewhere and the, the idea is that you don't you don't get you know because of your rank you don't get to say well i'm not a leader it doesn't matter if you're a private or if you're a general you are a leader if you're around another marine interesting huh <laughs> Speaking of this, one of the questions just came, how did you find kind of the transition of coming out of the Marine Corps and back into kind of civilian life? Total switch of topics there. It was a, yeah, no, it was a, it's a great question though. Cause it was a, it was an interesting transition. Um, I, I had been preparing for it, right. Cause I told, like I told you, I started the Legacy Empowerment Academy while I was still in the Marine Corps right, okay. and I had, during that time, I'm also a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu instructor. And so part of the Legacy Empowerment Academy is focusing on how to develop kind of the total person, the, mm. the, 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 the complete citizen, right? And one of the things that we talk about is self-actualization. A lot of the stuff that you do with, um, with working from the inside out, really dealing with what are the stories that we tell ourselves, what are the limiting beliefs that we have, how do we improve ourselves? I also taught self-defense, which is another prong of the Empowerment Academy. And so I had been preparing to kind of get out of the Marine Corps um, for about a year before I got out. But there's nothing quite that prepares you for that change. I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really understand how much of a change in lifestyle it was going to be. Um, it was definitely a lot, a lot different from when I joined the Marine Corps and how that was a change versus um, getting out. Because coming back to civilian society, and we moved um, here to Grand Rapids, which is where my wife is from, so I had to develop an entirely new network. Right. And all of that. It was a, it was an interesting experience. What was the biggest challenge for you? I think the biggest challenge was going from a place where I felt safe and where I felt I understood all of the rules and I understood and I had, you know, my camaraderie, my, my brothers yeah. and sisters in arms to going to a completely new place, um, but having a family. And so needing right. to provide, needing to do those types of things. And so it was definitely an adjustment period um, coming out of the Marine Corps. Is there, you, you just, when you said brothers and sisters in the Marine Corps, like was there a high representation of women in there? I mean, a high representation, um, I, if I was saying yeah. yes, I would be, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd be dishonest. Yeah. There were a number of women um, that I worked with. For example, one of the fellow company commanders that I had was a female um, officer. Um, 
and she was a phenomenal um, officer. She's now a major now. She, we were both captains at the time. She's now since become a major. A number of my mentors, I was a litigator, like I said, because I was a lawyer. And then I went in and, and became a company commander and did, did some other roles. But um, my mentor, both of my first mentors when I first got into the Marine Corps were female officers. Um, um, one was a major, both of them majors, um, and they had been in the Marine Corps for a, a number of years. And they showed me the rope. So it, I, I had a, I had a very amazing. interesting experience. Yeah, I, I, there were a number of, of, of females, um, especially in the legal profession, in the legal field. There were a number of females in that in that um, MOS. Um, so I got to see a lot of strong um, females. One of my current business partners um, was a uh, a gunnery sergeant in my company when I was company commander. She since I I did her retirement. She was also a business owner. Had done a lot of a, a lot of volunteer work and had a lot of interest in helping the youth of, of the, the community. She actually won a Legends of Onslow Award, which is oh, an man. award they give out for um, in, in, the, in the county. And that's the Onslow County of the county where Camp Lejeune is, which is the second largest Marine Corps base in the country. And so she, she, when she retired, she stayed in Camp Lejeune. She continued working in the community, and she won an award. She's now uh, working with the Chamber of Commerce in Carolina in a couple, couple weeks to go speak at the Small Business Association down there um, right. to, to help out some business owners down there. She's been very instrumental in kind of bringing me back to the community. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. So it's, it's, just, it's, it's nice to see kind of where you can take, you know, a relationship that you have in one thing and, and kind of carry it through to another. Yes. Yeah. So you, you have the Leadership Empowerment Academy, which you started in 2016, and then you started a consulting business in 2018. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. Okay, so my consulting business, like I said, what we do is we help business owners do more with less. What I really tell business owners is this, and business leaders in general, leadership is very different, and most of us are dealing with the overwhelm and the anxiety of being in charge of other people because we haven't been properly prepared. And so, you know, um, you see my book on the, uh, on the wall in the back. Strategic, uh, please. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. It, I like to set up the ambiance of the office. But uh, one of the things that we did, one of the reasons why I wrote that book, the title is Why Can't People Just Do Their Jobs? So the title of the book is Why Can't People Just Do Their Jobs? And I really, that title came from the frustrated comments of so many people that I was interviewing and talking to when I was working as a company commander, when I was working, um, as I was coming out of the Marine Corps, looking at, at what, how I could bring value to the community. And that was one question that continued to come up. And so what we do at Legacy Leadership Consulting is we help to reframe the problem and we help to develop leaders, but not just so that they can be better leaders individually, but so that they can get the benefit of being a better leader now and in the future. The basic idea, we go into businesses and I help business owners to understand that there's, there's really two things that they need to do so that they can get the results that the great leaders get, right? You, you, we've all seen those people who get, you know, 10 times, 100 times as much done out of their teams as other leaders. And what I call, those are the icons, right? Those are the people who are the moguls. They're, they're really great at what they do. And those legacy leaders, the difference between them and the, 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 the people who struggle is that they understand that leadership is about two things. Number one, 
You have to become as effective as an executive as you can be. You have to personally get really good at getting things off of your plate, at getting your job done, getting your tasks done. The second thing is you have to be able to duplicate yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you do that? The first piece to that, once we make you an effective executive, we teach you tips and tricks on how to get better at being productive and being productive at the right things. Then what we do is the second piece, which gives you exponential growth in the time that you can save. And that's mastering the art of delegation. So many people don't really understand how to delegate. And because they don't understand how to delegate, they actually wind up doing twice the work instead of half the work. And that's a big problem that a lot of the leaders that I deal with face. And so we teach them how to really understand how to get things off of their plate, how to delegate, how to automate, and how to eliminate, right? Tasks that they need to do so that they can do what leaders should be doing. And that's spending 60% or more of their time teaching, coaching, training, and developing their staffs. Do you find that a lot of people struggle with delegating because they're, they, want to, it's, they don't want to let go of that control? I don't find that, that that's the case. I, I think that's what a lot of people think is the problem. But it's not really a control issue, right? What it is, is a results issue. What they don't want to do is they don't want, they have a fear of what happens if my people fail. And the reason they have that fear is because that fear has been ingrained in us. What we have been taught since we were kindergartners was failure is bad. What do you get in school when you're getting bad grades? You get an F. Yeah. What does that F stand for? Failure, right? And what we've been taught is that failure is bad, failure is to be avoided at all costs. And here's the crazy thing. When you're a professional, when you're by yourself, you're, you're, you are, you're in control of what's going to be successful and what's going to be failure for you. What you do is what you get graded on. What you do is what you get, what, what's going to be problematic for you. And so that's what we work on. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you become a leader, you immediately become responsible for other people's work. Immediately, all of your reputation, everything that is who you are is now dependent upon other people doing well. So what most leaders do is they say, "Mm -mm -mm -mm, nope, I'm not going to let you determine (laughs) whether I get a raise. So I'm going to just work a lot harder. I'm going to not spend as much time at home. I'm going to miss the recitals and this and that, and I'm going to do all of this work and I'm going to plug all the gaps of where you're not good enough right now. And here's what winds up happening. The average supervisor, manager, executive in the United States right now works an average of 72 hours per week. I just want you to think about that for a second. That's almost two full-time jobs. And that's where so much of our stress is coming from. That's where so much of our anxiety is coming from. And the problem is, we are not leveraging our talents. Now, here's the fun thing about levers. Levers are there so that we can do exponentially more with less effort. And that's what we teach at Legacy Leadership Consulting. That's what we teach our business owners how to do. When you look at your staff, and just simple numbers, right? Let's say you have a staff of five people. Now, I want you to think about something. If that staff of five people if each one of them is only 10% as good as you are at doing any task that you want them to do, 
that group of five people together is now 50% as good as you are, right? Yeah. If you can get that staff to be 10% better, just 10%, if you can get them to 20% as good as you, instead of 10% as good as you, you've just doubled how many yous there are in the office. If you can get them to be 50% as good as you, right? Now you're looking at 250%, two and a half yous that are in the office. And that's if they're only half as good as you. But here's the really, really key point about this. Most of the people on your staff for the tasks that you're going to delegate to them, for the tasks that you're going to be giving over to them, they're going to eventually be way better than you at that task. Because all of those tasks are not in your zone of genius. That's what I was going to say is you're giving them space to grow and bring to, you know, a space at the table then. Yeah, exactly. And so now when you can get them operating in their greatness, when you can get them operating at a hundred percent, 110, 120% as good as you are, what you're doing now is you're reducing how much work you have to do versus how much results you get from that. And it's not a difficult thing. What most people think is that delegation is really difficult. It's not a difficult skill to learn. It's a skill that you just have to understand to think about differently than we think about it currently. That's because it, yeah. most people think about delegation like it's an abdication of responsibility. Here, I'm giving this to you and now I no longer have to deal with it. And that's not the way that it works. Yeah. Number one, it doesn't work that way because you're still responsible for the results <laughs> even if you hand off the task right? And your brain knows that, which is why you still have the anxiety and you still have the fear of everything going wrong. So when you hand it off, you're checking, you're checking your emails and you're micromanaging and you're going in and all of those things happen because we, we think that delegation is just giving the task away. That's not it. Delegation is not abdication. Delegation is facilitation. And that's the key. Once you delegate something to someone else, your job becomes facilitating them getting that thing done. And that actually takes way less time and energy once you've mastered the skills of delegation, once you've mastered the five principles of delegation. We talk about, in the book, I talk about the five principles of delegation being clarity, right? Aspiration, inspiration, ownership, and trust. And if you can develop those three things, if you can make sure that what you want your people to do is clear, that you're clear on what good looks like, that it's aspirational in that they're going to have to stretch, they're going to have to get better, that it's inspirational in that it actually motivates them and is in alignment with their goals and what they want for their lives, that you're actually giving them ownership. So you're not telling them the how to do it. You're not giving them the steps and just telling them to follow a list, but you're letting them create. You're letting them get involved, right? And lastly, when you can develop trust with your people so that they know that they have the room to make mistakes and to learn and to grow and you're not going to go ballistic. When you can do those things, your people will surprise you. They will do above and beyond exceedingly and abundantly more than you could have ever imagined. And in doing so, do you find, because of my experience with this is that there's a ripple effect that happens in mm-hmm. people's lives because then, when they go through like the steps like you you're saying it 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 takes stuff off their plate but yes. also they get to be present in other areas of their life like their family yes. relationships like other relationships so to me it's like you drop a pebble in the water and there's such a 
beautiful ripple effect with this. Yes. It, it affects so many areas of their lives. You know? Yes. It's, it's, it's really important that you, that you, that you pointed that out. And, and, and I think it's a point that's lost very often, right? This growth is not linear. This yeah. growth is exponential. And this is how it works. When you save an hour of time of work that you have to do, but you also save yourself three, four, five hours of stress related yeah. to that work, you're able to be more present in the hours that you're actually working and you're able to leave work at home. Yeah. I remember my epiphany moment was this. My wife tapped me on the shoulder and she said, hey, um, I didn't get married to be a single parent. <laughs> and, 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 right, you know, and it, it was really interesting because I was like, but wait, I'm doing all this work. I'm a company commander. And at this time I was working, you know, 12, 13 hour days. I was working on the weekends. And even when I wasn't at work, my wife used to say, you're home, but you're not really home. Your That's mind exactly, is still at yeah. work. Right. And I'm here. I am thinking that I'm doing good because I'm coming home and doing it. She's like, I know that you're not paying attention to what's going on here. Like we can all feel it. And so I had to really learn and understand that that wasn't good enough. And what I, what I did, I don't just teach this stuff from a perspective of, you know, I've read all the books and I know it because I, I took a class or I just, no, I lived it. I was doing 12, 13, 14 hour days. And I realized that this could not continue. I was on the verge of burnout. And what I was able to do is I learned how to make myself more efficient. I shortened how long it took me to do a lot of things and I mastered delegation. And I went from working 12, 13 hours a day to literally getting my work done in four hours a day. I would come in at 7.30 in the morning. By 11.30, I was done with all of my major tasks for the day. And to me, there's a significant difference when anybody, when you go and you're sharing with people. Mm -hmm. If you share from a space of really, really, like, it's not just embracing it, but really living it. There's mm -hmm. such a difference than somebody yes. just from a, you know, here's the five steps and kind of people feel that and, and exactly. people feel your presence as well. And it's like mm -hmm. your wife would feel it. Your kids would feel it. I'm sure it's one of these things when you're really not present, when you're somewhere else, it's just like, these things are all that, you know, people can feel that and that stops the connection or the flow. Exactly. And that's what leads to the dissatisfaction. Because one of the things, one of the misconceptions that a lot of leaders have is that they're not, that they need to get more productive, that they need to do more. Yeah. And the, the reality is you actually need to do less. And here's <laughs> the reason why, right? It's not that you're not as productive as you can be. Most of us who get into leadership positions get there because we get really good at being productive. Yeah. But the problem is when you, be, when you get to a leadership position, you now have to figure out how to be satisfied with how much you've gotten done. And because of the imposter syndrome, because of the fact that we have vague notions of what's good and what's not good from our superiors, right? And business owners have it even worse because they have to determine what's good. And the yeah. only thing they can think about is what the market may say, and they're not getting perfect information from the market, right? You, you're stuck in this place where you're constantly chasing a mirage, because we haven't actually figured out how to determine what's going to make us happy. And one of the first things I teach business owners how to do and business leaders how to do is to figure out what good looks like and mm. then to start working towards that. And once we get there, now there's a number of other steps that we talk about, about how to take 
you know, inventory of what we've done and how to quantify it and how to measure it and do all the rest of that type of stuff. But the first piece is just understanding that it's so important that we define what success looks like. Yeah. We have to own that kind of, like you said, working from the inside out, I'm going to tell me what success looks like for me. Yeah. And then I'm going to work to that because most people are tremendously productive. When I get, when I do my informal surveys, most of the time I ask people, how productive do you feel on a scale of one to 10? And they come out on the higher end, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, right? Mm. Then when I ask them this question, how satisfied are you with what you're getting done? Yeah. The numbers are always below five. And that's what we've got to work on. It's not a productivity problem. It's an effectiveness problem. And it's a satisfaction problem. Do you think something else in there is, is the ability to pivot? You know, so for me, when I'm working, like, like life is transient, like it flows. So mm-hmm. to be able to pivot and, and in leadership, you need that. You need to be able to like, you know, things can be going along and there's, you know, bells and whistles are going up, but all of a sudden something happens and the capacity to to know inherently that that's that's okay and to mm-hmm. be able to pivot is also a crucial thing i agree and and part of the reason why we we're not so comfortable with pivoting is because what we don't what we haven't established beforehand are our priorities yeah and the 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 the, the obstacle that most people struggle with with pivoting is the fear that they're pivoting away from a priority to a non-priority. Yeah. And that you won't know until it blows up. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. And so this, 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 this constant, right? One of the reasons I call it thriving in chaos is because being a leader, it's a lot like the chaos of war. In the Marine Corps, we talk about war is chaos, right? Because there's never perfect information. You can never know everything. You can never plan ahead for everything because you have a thinking, breathing, feeling enemy who is trying to counter what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so you can't always have perfect information. Leadership is a lot like that. When you're in an organization, when you're in an enterprise with other people where you're trying to direct the efforts of lots of people towards a goal, there's so many external factors that can influence that interaction. Yeah. And so you can never really know everything. And, you, and especially if you're a business owner or a business leader trying to do something that hasn't been done before, yeah. you're literally stepping out into the unknown. You don't know what's going to come up. And you, sometimes you don't know what's important. And when we understand that, what we can do is we can create systems that help us to filter that information, right? Mm-hmm. And one of those things, Stephen Covey talks about it, again, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that a lot of people think of time management as prioritizing your schedule, right? And so you take this hundred things that you've got to do and you put them in order of what's important and what's not, right? But that's actually not time management. That's not, that's reactive, right? Time management is actually scheduling your priorities. So first you decide your priorities and then you put them in the places and time where you need them to go. Now, everything else can be flexible. You can turn and you can make that happen. And so it's extremely important that you're able to understand that that flexibility is, is you, you're, people are fearful about it because they don't know what their priorities are. So we have to 
define our priorities. And that's, again, when we talk about defining success, that that first foundational step is saying, what's important to me? What's going to make me happy? Where am I trying to go? What is the story that I'm telling myself about this scenario? Because amazingly, once you define your rocks, once you define your priorities, everything else will flow around it. So a couple of things came up for me when you were saying that is when you left. So when you went into the Marine Corps and you left the, the when you left mm-hmm. technology for leaders has changed a lot. And, and a lot of leaders might think it puts a little bit more pressure on them because you, you, you know, you're always at the end of a phone to answer a call or a texture. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see a significant difference? in the time that you went into, you came out, that that was an issue? Interestingly, not as much. Because when I went, I kind of, when I went into the Marine Corps, it was a little bit, we had cell phones, we had, um, we had uh, email. And remember, I was a teacher and a basketball coach. So I was available 24-7 before I went into the Marine Corps. Being a company commander, it was a similar situation. I was available 24-7. I had a BlackBerry as a, as a um, company commander and a cell phone and email. And what I learned was I had to set boundaries. I had to set parameters. I had to define what my priorities were. And then once I was able to do that, what it allowed me to do was, interestingly enough, people will respect your boundaries once they know where they are and they know that you're going to enforce them. So something as simple as I don't work on Sundays, right? That's something for me that Sunday is a family day. I may put out a post on Facebook. I may do something, you know, socially, but I'm not going to do a seminar or I'm not doing any of those types of things because that's a day for me to be with my family and to be able to enjoy time off. But that only works if I enforce that rule. Right. And people only know to enforce, they only know to respect it if I respect it. The step that has to happen before that is I have to become certain that that's the rule that I really want and that I'm comfortable enforcing it, right? And so we go through in the Thriving in Chaos program, I take leaders through a lot of those kind of scenarios. But another thing that that I wanted to kind of touch on with regard to the the feeling that a lot of people have that they have to be on 24-7, that they have to be available, all those other types of things, the story that we tell ourselves is that when I send an email or when somebody sends me an email, right, they're expecting me to reply right away. Yeah. They're expecting me to answer the phone at all times. When the reality is that's not how we treat people who send emails, right? If I send an email to somebody and they don't respond to me in that day, the first thought that comes across my mind is they're probably busy. Yeah. That's the reason why they're in my circle of people that I send emails to anyway, because the people that I deal with are all people that are busy. I don't deal with anybody that's just sitting around by their computer (laughs) all day and just has time for it, right? Yeah. And so I naturally give them the benefit of the doubt, but I expect that they wouldn't give me the same. And here's the kicker. I'm actually busy. That's why I'm not emailing them back. (laughs) But I don't allow myself that same grace. And so um, I read... There's a book that I read, The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, yeah. Right? And it was so helpful in kind of putting this together because one of the things that he talked about, now, working in the federal government, 
I couldn't go as far as he did. He owned his own company and he did that. But I have gotten a lot more to that now that I own my own company. One of the things that he said is he checked email once a week. And he let everybody know, hey, check email once a week. This is the only time I check it. So if you need something from me, here's my cell phone number. If it's an emergency, go ahead and give me a call. But you only got a couple of times to call me when it's not an emergency and then your number gets blocked. (laughs) So recognize that I'm giving you a way to be in touch with me. But my time is very valuable. I'm very busy. I'm always moving. So this is my system, right? So once he set expectations for people, people... Did well with that. Right. And when I was a company commander, I, that was one of the first things, first changes that I made, right? I was working 12, 13, 14 hours. Part of the reason I was working so long is because I was always at my computer. When I was in my office, I was always working and following up with people and doing yeah. stuff. And I thought that that was what people wanted. What I changed was I would come in in the morning and I would do kind of a triage of my email. I would look at any of the things that actually needed to get on my schedule for that day. That's all I would do when I check my email in the morning. Then if they need to get on my schedule for that day, then I would put them on my to-do list as things to do so that I would actually give myself credit for knocking them out. Anything else would have to wait till I checked my email at noon, which was normally when I got done with the bulk of all the work that I had to do. So I had a good solid block of four hours that I could work and get things done. And so at noon, I would follow up with anything else, ancillary or things from tomorrow that I could deal with today, all the rest of that. Then at the end of the day, I would check my email again. And I would check it to make sure that there was nothing that I had missed, nothing that I had forgotten because I knew I wasn't perfect. But in doing that and checking my email, and literally I would close down Outlook, it would not be open except for those three times of the day, right? If I was responding to an email, it would be open. Once I got finished responding to the email, I would close it. I didn't leave it open. I didn't see the pings. I didn't do all the rest of that. I got so much more productive because I was able to be focused on what I was giving my time to instead of allowing people to insert their fires into my already pre-planned day. Such a great way to look at it. Um. One of the things you said was boundaries, you know, and, and, and that's kind of one of these things is when you create that. I call them beautiful boundaries. They're mm-hmm. there for a reason, you know. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you noticed this with your kids, like it's one of the things I had to, like I had to say to them, like if somebody sends a message or phone and mm-hmm. it's family time, like we're yep. having dinner, you yep. don't have to answer the phone. Yes. You know, you don't have to respond to that text or whatever. It's an interesting thing where people can get caught up in, oh, well, somebody's texting me. I've got to respond right away. Yeah. And a lot of times it's because we are, we have expectations. We have higher expectations on ourselves than other people have of us. Yeah. And it's the story that we're telling ourselves, right? There's that imposter syndrome that comes in. We think that if I don't respond, people are going to know that I'm not as good at taking care of this as I really am. And it's like, no, you're not really as good as if you're responding to everything, you're not really as good. You're just putting up a facade. The reality is you are busy and it's okay to be busy. You can both be busy and very good at taking care of your responsibilities. Both can exist in the same space. And one of the keys that I help leaders to get is a routine and a system so that they know what they're going to do in that situation. 
because oftentimes what we give people, you know, what, what a lot of books and a lot of um, programs will tell people is, well, just don't answer your phone. That's not realistic, right? What am I going to do in that space? How am I, what am I going to tell myself? What, what am I going to, what am I going to respond to them? When they ask me, why didn't you answer? What am I going to tell them, right? And, and what I do is I help leaders to prepare for those situations, for the awkward situations, for the uncomfortable situations, for when people challenge your boundaries, how do you respectfully enforce them and make them understand that you believe and you are firmly convinced that your boundaries are reasonable and that they're helping? Right. And that's what, that's one of the reasons why what we do a lot is we focus on quantifying your results. Right. I wouldn't have said this if I was still working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. Like that wouldn't have been a suggestion yeah. that would have worked. But because it allowed me to shrink how much time it took me to get things done, I can say this is definitely something that works. And how did I know that? Because. Every day I would make my to-do list and I could go back over a week and look at all of the things that I got done on the days where I limited how much I allowed people to interrupt my day. And then I would also look at the thing, the days that I, uh, when I let people interrupt mm-hmm. and every time the interruptions were the culprit. So true. I love this conversation. There's so much of this I could keep going back to, but I'm, 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 I'm cognizant of time. One of the questions I had for you, Robert, was you have your, your, the name legacy in mm-hmm. your empowerment. So what is the legacy part about? Yes. Well, so I'm a big proponent that everybody is here for a reason. All of us have greatness within us. And I believe that the greatness that has been gifted to you is meant to be made manifest to the world so that the world can benefit. Right. And so kind of a quintessential question at all times is what is your legacy going to be, right? Um, There's a quote from Isaac Newton that I love. And one of the things that he says, you know, people were talking to him about, you've been such, such a luminary in science and you've seen and discovered and done so many things. And what he said was, was so pivotal. He said, if I have seen farther than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And so to me, when I look at legacy, I look at how is the world going to be different? How are people's lives going to be different because I live? And for my leaders, I try to teach them and help them to understand that leadership is about, like I said, leadership, the definition for me is facilitating the manifestation of greatness in others. Because you lead, someone else is going to have their greatness be expressed someone else is going to be able to change the world. And when we lead people, when we are legacy leaders, when we empower people to be their greatest selves, we don't just change them. We change everybody that gets to benefit from their gift. And the key, the, the next key to that legacy piece, right, is this. And we talked about this a little bit in our chat beforehand, right? I, I love the, the adage, if you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day. If you teach a person to fish, you feed them for a lifetime, right? And I think that that's the first part of leadership. That's the, the idea of helping people to manifest their greatness, right? That helps them. But the key of being a legacy leader is this. Legacy leaders teach people to teach people to fish. And if you can teach a person to teach a person to fish, you can feed the entire world. And that's why legacy is so important. 
Super powerful. I absolutely love that. Glad that we got that in there because that was, I loved that part of our conversation before. So I'm really cognizant of the time, but I just, can I just ask you a little bit about your book before we go? Yeah. Why thank you. Yes. So um, my book is Why Can't People Just Do Their Job? I normally always have a paperback copy with me because I'm writing something from it or uh, taking something from it. But is this your first book, Robert? This is my first book. This is the, and it's actually the first book. It's the middle book of a three book series, nice. um, which is the Legacy Leader series. And what we're basically doing in the book, this book is the part about making the transition from learning how to lead yourself to learning how to become an empowering leader. And I put this book out first because like I said, with Legacy Leadership Consulting, we're really about trying to help people who are dealing with that overwhelm, that anxiety of being thrust into leadership positions without the tools, without the training. And so the the book, Why Can't People Just Do Their Jobs is meant to, to deal with that frustration and to help leaders learn how to become empowering leaders. And it teaches my empower method which is basically the method to set your team up to be to take initiative, to have follow through, and to do their best work when you're not around. Mm. Nice. So, when are the other two books coming out? So, um, we're actually starting. I'm, I'm doing the outlining for the first book, and that that book is. Um, we actually have just started a program. We're doing, um, and it's a pilot program that we're uh, that we're piloting this year. It's called Thriving Chaos. I'm actually doing a webinar um, here coming up over the next couple of weeks because we're oh, going to be opening opening that product that program up. Um, it's it's going to be a four week coaching program where people will learn how to deal with that anxiety and that overwhelm of not having enough time to get everything done, mm-hmm. right? And so that first prong that I told you about helping people to become the most effective executives they can become that's what this program is really going to center on. It's going to focus on helping people to master their time to own their time instead of just managing the other people's priorities. And so um, that book, the, the book is, is, is tentatively titled thriving in chaos. Um, and that's what it's going to be about. And then the last book is going to be a book about how to create the systems that we need to create that make it so that not only are we able to develop leaders, but the leaders that we develop are able to develop other leaders. Love that. Love that. I'm really looking forward to seeing that all, all, all come uh, to fruition. Yeah, I'm, lo- I'm, I'm loving it. It's, a, it's, it's definitely a labor of love and I, I really enjoy it because every time I write a book, one of the things I get to do is kind of, like I said, I put together a program, I, I, I teach and I help a lot of, of people. Um, and so I get the stories and the things that we're, that, that we're trying to do from that. I got to interview for this book. I got to interview one of my, um, my first sergeant when I was company commander oh. um, about just kind of what his experience was like with me during that transition when I went from working 12 hours to to four hours. Right. And, you know, I didn't just slough off and work four hours, what I was able to do during that, the the other time. Right. And, and I mentioned this quote earlier, Deloitte talks about for leaders. Um, and they talk about this in their set in their, um, in their, uh, I want to say their, um, their September, 2016 issue. They say, you know, Two, 60% of a leader's time in, the, in the, the top engaged companies, right, with the top engaged employees, the leaders spent 60% of their time developing their team, coaching, yeah. con- counseling, training, right? And the way that you can get to developing and having that much time is 
to become an extremely effective person. But then number two is to master the art of delegation. And that's really what the book, what this book talks about. It talks about getting yourself in the position of understanding what you want and then to master delegation. And so that's why can't people just do their job? That's what we are um, really, really talking about. But when I was working as a, as company commander um, in that off time, like I told you, I'm a martial arts instructor. I'm a Gracie Jiu Jitsu instructor. I was able to teach about 40 of my Marines a course over about a month. We did three hours a day in the afternoons where I was teaching them sexual assault prevention techniques, how to be a, a, a helpful bystander or an intervener when you see something happening because we were dealing with the sexual assault epidemic. This was kind of right before the Me Too movement really yeah, um, yeah. kicked off. And so that was something that I was able to do in my time with my company was still running. Everything was going fine, but I was able to do that project. I was also able to open up a school, um, a jujitsu school in the Jacksonville area so that, and to run and manage that school so that my students or so that the families and, 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 and so that um, Marine Corps families and Marine and state and Navy um, service personnel were able to come and learn how to defend themselves. That was something I was able to do in my evenings. Why? Because I was able to reduce how much time I had to spend in the office yeah. doing the work that wasn't necessarily my job, but was really me micromanaging my staff, trying to get them, uh, trying, to, trying to deal with that fear that I had of uh, some sort of mistake that was going to happen. Robert, you're an inspiration. I look forward to, to seeing all this come out and, and sharing your book. So you actually are very kindly gifting the audience with the uh, uh, PDF. What is it? Um, it's the ebook. Yes, yes. So, um, for everybody that's listening, um, and because you are so awesome, and and, and I really want to make sure that this message gets out there. What I've done is we set up um, so that you can get a free e copy of the book. Um, all you have to do is send me an email, and that email is at um, Robert at Legacy Leadership Mastery dot com. Right. Robert at LegacyLeadershipMastery.com. You send me an email letting me know that you heard about the book on this show, and I will get you over a free copy, of, a free e-copy of the book. Um, and you can go and, and check out some of our other programs and what things we've got going on over at LegacyLeadershipMastery.com. That's our website. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to really help out anybody that, that, that you have on your show. And if anybody wants to, you know, talk about their situation or needs any help or anything, then you feel free to reach out for me. I'm also doing uh, free uh, strategy calls. We do about a 17 minute CEO call. Cause I know that people don't have a lot of time. So we get to the, uh, we get to the heart of it and How see whether or not. I can help. <laughs> well, 17 minutes is one of those things that for me, it's, it's less than 20. Right. And yeah. so it, it really, it, it let, it, it says like, this is going to be quick. We're not trying to take a lot of time. And I want to make sure that I've got enough time to do what we need to do. And there's always that like two minutes of kind of introductory and everything. So we went with 15 minutes and added a little bit of time so that I, you don't feel rushed. I like that. Robert, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch with you. Well, thank you so much, Jesse Lynn, and I really appreciate it. And I look forward to, you know, continuing our relationship, continuing the conversation, and to helping out any of your fans and, and your watchers who, who want to reach out. We appreciate it. Take care, Robert. Have a great one. I so enjoyed this conversation.
I could have talked to Robert for a couple more hours. Robert's journey into leadership is so interesting. Not only does he have an impressive past and such a passion, but he's creating such a powerful movement with his legacy leadership work. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Here are a few thought bomb takeaways. Leveraging talent and delegation paves the way to doing more in less time. It facilitates and fosters growth, and this is the space where overall exponential growth happens. Prioritizing, having clearly defined and communicated systems and boundaries, and working from a proactive approach leads to a much less stressful and more productive and dedicated company culture. A leader is one who embraces personal growth and cultivates it in others. It's really about facilitating the manifestation of the greatness in others. And finally, great leadership embraces the aspect of legacy. As Robert says, when we empower people to be their greatest selves, we don't just change them. We change everybody that gets to benefit from their gift. I love that. Speaking of gifts, I'm so grateful to Robert that he has offered to you as listeners of this podcast. If you reach out to him via email and mention this offer, he will send you a free e-copy of his book, Why Can't People Just Do Their Jobs? It's about empowering leaders to have more fulfillment, less stress, and getting the best out of those you lead. And I highly recommend you take Robert up on this very kind offer. His email is robert at legacyleadershipmastery.com. Until next time, be well, be inspired, be you. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll share this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Jessie Lynn, please check out the contact page on her website, jessielynnmcdonald.com. Also, we'd be beyond grateful if you would leave us a review. Join us next time for another edition of the CPR of Life.